0: Third part of the eighth chapter of the Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Daniel Fraser. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter 8 Ideal Society, Part 3. Their Opposite Outlook. The Divine and the Material are contrasted points of reference required by the Actual. Reason working on the immediate flux of appearances, reaches these ideal realms and, resting in them, perforce calls them realities. One, the realm of causes, supplies appearances with a basis and calculable order. The other, the realm of truth and felicity, supplies them with a standard and justification. Natural society may accordingly be contrasted with ideal society not because nature is not, logically speaking, ideal too, but because in natural society we ally ourselves consciously with our origins and surroundings, in ideal society with our purposes. There is an immense difference in spirituality, in ideality of the moral sort, between gathering or conciliating forces for action and fixing the ends which action should pursue. Both fields are ideal in the sense that intelligence alone could discover or exploit them. Yet to call nature ideal is undoubtedly equivocal, since its ideal function is precisely to be the substance and cause of the given flux, a groundwork for experience, which, while merely inferred and potential, is nonetheless mechanical and material. The ideality of nature is indeed of such a sort as to be forfeited if the trusty instrument and true antecedent of human life were not found there. We should be frivolous and inconstant, taking our philosophy for a game, and not for method in living, if having set out to look for the causes and practical order of things, and having found them, we should declare that they were not really causal or efficient, on the strange ground that our discovery of them had been a feat of intelligence, and had proved a priceless boon. The absurdity could not be greater if in moral science, after the goal of all effort had been determined and happiness defined, we declared that this was not really the good. Those who are shocked at the assertion that God and nature are ideal, and that their contrasted prerogatives depend on that fact, may of course use the words in a different way, making them synonymous, and may readily prove that God or nature exists materially and has absolute being. We need but agree to designate by those terms the sum of existences, whatever they, or it, may be to their own feeling. Then the ontological proof asserts its rights unmistakably. Science and religion, however, are superfluous if what we wish to learn is that there is something, and that all there is must assuredly be all there is. Ecstasies may doubtless ensue upon considering that being is and non-being is not, as they are said to ensue upon long enough considering one's navel. But the life of reason is made of more variegated stuff. Science, when it is not dialectical, describes an ideal order of existences in space and time, such that all incidental facts, as they come, may fill it in and lend it body. Religion, when pure, contemplates some pertinent ideal of intelligence and goodness, Both religion and science live in imaginative discourse, one being an aspiration and the other a hypothesis. Both introduce into the mind an ideal society. The life of reason is no fair reproduction of the universe, but the expression of man alone. A theory of nature is nothing but a mass of observations, made with a hunter's and an artist's eye. A mortal has no time for sympathy with his victim or his model and, beyond a certain range, he has no capacity for such sympathy, as, in order to live, he must devour one half the world and disregard the other, so, in order to think and practically to know, he must deal summarily and selfishly with his materials, otherwise his intellect would melt again into endless and irrevocable dreams. The law of gravity, because it so notably unifies the motions of matter, is something which these motions themselves know nothing of. It is a description of them in terms of human discourse. Such discourse can never assure us absolutely that the motions it forecasts will occur. The sensible proof must ensue spontaneously in its own good time. In the interval, our theory remains pure presumption and hypothesis. Reliable as it may be in that capacity, it is no replica of anything on its own level existing beyond. It creates, like all intelligence, a secondary and merely symbolic world. In translating existence into human terms, they give human nature its highest exercise. When this diversity between the truest theory and the simplest fact, between potential generalities and actual particulars, has been thoroughly appreciated, it becomes clear that much of what is valued in science and religion is not lodged in the miscellany underlying these creations of reason, but is lodged rather in the rational activity itself, and in the intrinsic beauty of all symbols bred in a genial mind. Of course, if these symbols had no real points of reference, if they were symbols of nothing, they could have no great claim to consideration and no rational character. At most they will be agreeable sensations. They are, however, at their best, Good symbols for a diffused experience having a certain order and tendency. They render that reality with a difference, reducing it to a formula or a myth, in which its tortuous length and trivial detail can be surveyed to advantage without undue waste or fatigue. Symbols may thus become eloquent, vivid, important, being endowed with both poetic grandeur and practical truth. The facts, from which this truth is borrowed, if they were rehearsed unimaginatively, in their own flat infinity, would be far from arousing the same emotions. The human eye sees in perspective. Its glory would vanish were it reduced to a crawling, exploring antenna. Not that it loves to falsify anything. That to the worm the landscape might possess no light and shade. That the mountain's atomic structure should be unpicturable cannot distress the landscape gardener nor the poet. What concerns them is the effect such things may produce in the human fancy, so that the soul may live in a congenial world. Naturalist and prophet are landscape painters on canvases of their own. Each is interested in his own perception and perspective, which, if he takes the trouble to reflect, need not deceive him about what the world would be if not foreshortened in that particular manner. This special interpretation Is nevertheless precious and shows up the world in that light in which it interests naturalists or prophets to see it. Their figments make their chosen world, as the painter's apperceptions are the breath of his nostrils. Science should be mathematical and religion anthropomorphic. While the symbol's applicability is essential to its worth, since otherwise science would be useless and religion demoralising. Its power and fascination lie in its acquiring a more and more profound affinity to the human mind so long as it can do so without surrendering its relevance to practice thus natural science is at its best when it is most thoroughly mathematical since what can be expressed mathematically can speak a human language in such science only the ultimate material elements remain thirds all their further movements and complication can be represented in that kind of thought which is most intimately satisfactory and perspicuous. And in like manner, religion is at its best when it is most anthropomorphic. Indeed, the two most spiritual religions, Buddhism and Christianity, have actually raised a man, overflowing with utterly human tenderness and pathos, to the place usually occupied only by cosmic and thundering deities the human heart is lifted above misfortune and encouraged to pursue unswervingly its inmost ideal when no compromise is any longer attempted with what is not moral or human, and Prometheus is honestly proclaimed to be holier than Zeus. At that moment, religion ceases to be superstitious and becomes a rational discipline, an effort to perfect the spirit rather than to intimidate it. Summary of this book We have seen that society has three stages – the natural, the free and the ideal. In the natural stage, its function is to produce the individual and equip him with the prerequisites of moral freedom. When this end is attained, society can rise to friendship, to unanimity and disinterested sympathy, where the ground of association is some ideal interest, while this association constitutes at the same time a personal and emotional bond. Ideal society, on the contrary, transcends accidental conjunctions altogether. Here the ideal interests themselves take possession of the mind. Its companions are the symbols it breeds and possesses for excellence, beauty and truth. Religion, art and science are the chief spheres in which ideal companionship is found. It remains for us to traverse these provinces in turn and see to what extent The life of reason may flourish there. End of chapter 8, part 3 End of volume 2 of The Life of Reason by George Santayana